This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Eco Chic. My name is Laura Diaz. I hope you have been well. Thank you so much for showing up today. I have to say I had a really fabulous time off. I really needed the reset. I mentioned on the last episode where we spoke with Katie from Money with Katie. It was an episode I really, really loved. But I mentioned at the top, I hadn't really taken any time off over the holidays. So I decided to take time off over my birthday in January. And I had a really fabulous time. I was skiing in Europe. I had never been to Switzerland before and I had never skied abroad. And it was just like such, such a cool experience. I feel like I have to do an episode on trains because I'm a real fan anyway in the US. But if I can take a train, I'm taking a train. And I just had such a good reset away. I feel like I really needed it. I've come back so motivated and fresh. And I feel like I've had some of the most productive days I've had in a long time. And I am very thankful for the space to do that with the show. Today's episode is a really good one. We are talking with Virginia Shamley. She is an artist, a writer, and the author of the best-selling book, Big Thrift Energy. I really loved this book, and I do make very specific references to the book throughout the conversation with Virginia today, and that's because I totally marked mine up. Like, I have all of the little flags on there. I've put post-its to myself. It was such a good interactive read, not just about thrifting and about resale, but finding your personal style. And it was a book that I enjoyed so, so deeply, highly recommend. Also because it's something that you can reference. I made this comment to Virginia during the conversation today that you'll hear, but I said that the book felt a lot like an early 2000s fashion book, like a book about how to find your personal style or how to shop for a capsule wardrobe or something along those lines because there's quizzes and there's really good interactive bits of the book. And I feel like I was needing that in the homeware space especially. And you can find that book absolutely everywhere. I feel like after I read it, I started seeing it absolutely everywhere and I highly recommend it. It's a book that I'm going to start gifting to friends when they move into a new space. I mentioned Virginia is also an artist. Her original art and prints are available through Anthropology, Cherish, and Artfully Walls and have been featured in high-end residential projects as well as commercial projects, including the green room at Jimmy Kimmel Live, which is something that we laugh about today. Really, really cool. She also has commissions available, of course. I'll also say that Virginia is one of my favorite follows on social media. She does some really cool walkthroughs of thrift stores. She does some really cool kind of exposés on specific pieces that she finds or pieces that she wants to talk through. And she has such a wealth of knowledge on vintage, on secondhand, on rare pieces. And she has such an incredible eye for very unique, one-of-a-kind pieces. Even if they're not necessarily a brand or designer you would recognize, Virginia knows how to use it in a space. 
I honestly feel like watching her on Instagram and TikTok creating content is an educational experience in itself. The book was incredible and has taught me so much, but she is a living, breathing encyclopedia of all things incredible. Virginia and I today talk a lot about topics she covers in her book, again, like finding your personal style, really crafting a room out of secondhand pieces, but we also talk briefly about resale. We don't talk as much about it as we could have, and I would love to have her back to talk more about the resale market of vintage and secondhand, but that's something that you can find a lot of through her content online, as well as, of course, in her book, like I mentioned. All of my links are always in the show notes if you want to get in touch, if you want to see what I'm up to. I'm going to be sharing lots of pictures and lots of videos of secondhand things that I saw in thrift stores in Italy. That was something I really wanted to do while I was there. Just see what was for sale at these vintage secondhand curated stores it was incredible. And then, of course, as always, I will be sharing little clips from the video portion of today's podcast conversation. So if you are looking for visuals to go along with anything we talk about today, you can find them on my socials. And with that, we're jumping in. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Virginia Shamley. We are harnessing our big thrift energy. Enjoy. I would love to talk a little bit to start about your personal style because you grew up around great style, it sounds like. You grew up with a grandmother who had a great interior taste. You grew up sourcing things. Like, I want to know a little bit about your personal style, what it looks like now, how it's changed over time. So I grew up in Ponte Vedra Beach, Florida, which is a coastal area, mostly in the 90s, I guess, is when I was growing up. And uh, I was raised by my grandmother, like you mentioned, and she and I were kind of thick as thieves. She was a single mom and I was the only child. She was very entrepreneurial. Um, and she started this crazy business, side business when I was young, where she would buy containers of furniture that had been lost in transit. And they were like really nice new containers of furniture. This was when shabby chic was kind of the thing. And so in Ponte Vedra, which is near Jacksonville, it really hadn't quite trickled down here yet. But she found that she could buy the containers of the stuff that was on its way to New York for a lot less. Now, she didn't know what was in the container. Everything may have been broken, but that was just like a risk she took. And so she started by having a container sale on our front lawn, totally illegal, by the way, like no business license. This was like in our community. Um, and she had all of her friends over and everything sold because everybody wanted this stuff and they couldn't get it. And so it just became more and more popular. And she decided to start kind of a little store. And so she did that in our living room. So all of the furniture was from these containers, but she needed accessories because she really wanted to make it look like a store. And so she would go to the thrift store and estate sales and auctions and find her, her niche was really finding like designer things and artists made things and unique things that would complement this designer furniture. Um, you know, and she found that she could find all of that stuff at thrift stores. And so that's really when I started going. Um, and so from the jump, like from the early days of me going thrifting, I was always looking for like really, really nice, high quality stuff. And I think that influenced my style a lot. I think just the 90s in general influenced my style a lot. I love sort of postmodernism. Um, and she loved antiques as well. And I think I have a real love and appreciation for sort of all eras. And I like the mix and I like combining things. And I never want to just sort of stick to one idea or sort of one singular theme, I guess, when I design a room. Um, I sort of like everything. So... Yeah, that's that's how I got into it. And I just really never stopped. I feel like 
the special part of this story too is that it's evolved so much over time that you recognize that you can enjoy so many different styles and you talk about that in the book like there are style types that folks fall into with their homewares but you don't need to fall into a style type always you totally don't and i i wanted to include that in the book because i think People sometimes like to categorize themselves, and especially if you're super intimidated, not just by thrifting, but by design in general. That's the hard part about thrifting is you go in and it's not like a West Elm or an Ikea where the rooms are decorated already. So you know exactly what it would look like and you really have to use your imagination. And if you're not used to doing that, it can be really hard. So I wanted to put sort of like quizzes and stuff to allow people to understand, you know, if you like symmetry maybe you're more traditional if you like pears or you know if you really like rattan and then plaster maybe you're more boho i am a maximalist i like everything um but not everyone is that way and i totally get that and the cool thing about thrift stores and antique malls and estate sales is you can find all of it at those places i love the quizzes i love the format and the flow of the book i was telling you beforehand it feels like a early 2000s like fashion how to find your own style type book And that's what I think I needed in the thrift category for homewares. And I was saying beforehand, I also think that a lot of folks feel intimidated by purchasing furniture secondhand because it's, in a sense, like quite finite, right? Like you only need one sofa or like one coffee table and you feel like you're making this huge commitment, whether you're buying new or secondhand. And it's intimidating regardless, like you mentioned. Whereas with fashion, you have so many things in your closet that you're like, you know, if this one thrifted thing doesn't work out, I have other options. So there's this interesting kind of like treasure hunt quality of shopping for secondhand furniture where you want to really do it and you want to like have the hunt and have the adventure of it. But you also have to live with it. And you also have to like realize that this is the style, the space, like the home that you're truly curating. So I'd love to talk to you a little bit about like that initial moment when folks are going into the furniture store. I'm sure you hear it all the time where folks just feel like they're unprepared or they're just like not ready to do it. And you have this great section in the beginning of the book about getting prepared to go furniture shopping. So I'd love to talk a little bit about that. What do you think are some of like the pitfalls or the things that like keep people from shopping secondhand for their homes? Well, I think a really big one is people are impatient (laughs) and we're very spoiled by, uh, you know, just sort of an endless amount of stuff in the world. And so if you want something really specific, like a coffee table, that's difficult to find. I mean, I'm just being 100 percent honest, going to like one single thrift store, you're probably not going to find the perfect coffee table of your dreams. So you do have to have some patience. And I also think it's so important to be open minded because we get this idea in our head that like, well, I want I want an oak coffee table and I want it to be square and these dimensions. And that's what I want. But the cool thing about thrifting and Vintage shopping is you might stumble upon something totally different that you would never have even thought of. Like maybe it's a trunk or maybe it's a bench and that would serve as a coffee table. And then if you do find the coffee table of your dreams, you can use both of them. Put the bench at the foot of your bed or whatever, because you probably didn't invest that much money into it. Um, I think another thing that intimidates people is the actual physicality of it. I mean, that's worth mentioning. You know, when you go to a thrift store, you probably have to bring the item home yourself or you're going to have to hire delivery people. Some thrift stores are run by volunteers and they legally can't even bring the things to your car. Um, And, you know, and we're used to like going to an Ikea or whatever that you just buy the stuff in a box and put it together yourself. Um, Of course, vintage furniture is going to last you a lot longer. So that's one of the reasons I 
I advocate for buying vintage. Um, and then I think it's important to like, like we mentioned earlier with the quizzes and everything in the book, it's so important to get an idea of your personal style and just what resonates with you. I think the easiest way to do that is to go on Instagram and Pinterest and just save those photos that you really, really love and ask yourself why you love them. You know, is it the color? Is it the shape? Is it the contrast of a huge painting with like a diminutive table next to it? Um, and just get those idea in your head and, and also go onto websites like Cherish and First Dibs, not even to shop, but just to like get an idea for what you like. Because on those websites, you know, you can see the items like against a white background. And that sounds so silly. But when you go to a thrift store, things are just everywhere. And sometimes it's really difficult to like cut and copy and paste them into your home in your mind, which you have to do. They're not styled. It's not like going to the mall or going to a big furniture store. Um, you really have to be able to use your imagination. And that's easier said than done sometimes. Oh, absolutely. Easier said than done. I feel like there's this part of my personal home style in my head that never matches up with what I'm looking for in the store. And I think that's because maybe I go in with too high of expectations or I haven't done enough work, like you said, like going out and like really taking stock of what it is that I like. And I think there's a point in time where you're also like very susceptible to social media or what you're seeing. Like we're seeing all this conversation now about like the sad beige homes or the sad beige moms and like what does that trend look like? And I think it's easy for people to fall into this trap that like they believe that they like something because they've seen it so many times. But if you're taking the time to like truly do your homework, I think in a lot of these spaces, you find that it may not align with that. I have started calling my personal style like Miami cocaine chic, like the 80s gold brass. Yeah, like just pastels and like it's a little bit tacky but it's like it looks put together that's like a pretty specific style that I do not have great luck finding in Denver Colorado all the time I'm, but in Florida like you would I'm have excellent luck yes so I think what you're saying about like being prepared and doing your homework is so deeply valuable because it's like you don't know actually if you're just consuming media of other people's homes it's so true it's such a good point and I I've fallen into that trap myself especially when I started selling, which we can get into that later. But when I started selling vintage furniture and housewares, I was really susceptible to what I saw other people selling, even though like that wasn't my customer base. So it made no sense for me, but I would like buy, you know, like a rattan basket or something. A lot of people sell those and they'll do like sort of a, sh a shape of them on their walls. But that's just that was never my aesthetic. I probably wouldn't have hung that in my own home. But I felt like in those early days, well, I'm seeing other people sell this and so maybe I should sell this. It's it's a similar idea, I think. Oh, absolutely. And also you mentioned in the book, like preparation around specific items like you were mentioning earlier. If you want a coffee table, you can go in with this vague idea that like you need something for your living room and it could be a trunk. It could be a coffee table. So I want to talk a little bit about like that mental list. Like once you have checked off your major big items. You do talk a little bit also in the book about like this formula of building around a room. Um, you have your furniture, you have accessories. I'd love to talk a little bit about that mental list. Like when you are moving into a space for the first time, how are you building out a room? How are you kind of preparing yourself to go into thrift stores, secondhand stores looking for not just furniture, but like all of the parts of a room? Yeah. So I always do like from the ground up. I mean, I start with a, a rug and my drapes or um, window treatments and then like the big pieces of furniture. 
for me, though, to be honest, it is evolving pretty frequently because I do thrift and vintage shop so often. So occasionally I'll get a piece that's like so major that it kind of throws everything off. And then I have to sort of rebuild around it. But sometimes it works. I mean, I have this one chair. It was 10 bucks at Goodwill. It was orange corduroy, really ugly. And I recovered it in this beautiful black and white Kelly Wurstler fabric. And I have had it in my old home, which was like a 1920s Mediterranean home. I have it in my new home, which is like a 1990s Florida beach home. And it's worked in every one. And I think that's just because I love it. And I I don't want to say I forced it, but, um, you know, I think you can kind of force things. And the cool thing about thrifting and buying constantly, especially if you sell, is that you can live with something for a while, you know, and figure out if you like it. And if you totally don't, then you can sell it down the line. Quick break to tell you about every plate. I am a meal kit girly and I am always looking for something that's value packed and really high quality. If you're looking to budget your food expenses this February, you can save big and eat great with America's best value meal kit, Every Plate. Their meals are cheaper than your average fast casual restaurant, so you can ditch takeout and save money while still enjoying fresh, satisfying meals. Plus, you can count on Every Plate to make mealtimes easier without compromising on quality. Every plate recipes include only the highest quality ingredients and include sustainably sourced seafood. I always look for the Monterey Bay Aquarium seafood rankings when I'm looking into seafood, and every plate always meets them, so you know your meals will be fresh and flavorful. And to make it even better, every plate offsets 100% of their delivery emissions, and their meals have a 31% lower carbon footprint on average than supermarket meals of the same portion. You're making the sustainable choice with every plate. Plus, nearly all of their packaging materials are curbside recyclable in most areas of the US. I mentioned I had been trying traveling for a couple of weeks, I was out of the country and there was nothing nicer than coming home to an every plate box delivered the next day. After eating out, I was so excited to cook at home and I was so excited to have quality, healthy meals. I get their vegetarian package. I made these incredible shawarma rama chickpea rice bowls. They had zucchini, they had hummus. They were just so good. It of course saved me so much time to not have to go to the grocery store as soon as I came back from a vacation but it was also so nice to have a super quick meal. I think it took me less than 30 minutes to make those bowls. If you've been waiting for a sign, this is it. Get started with every plate starting at just $1.49 per meal plus $1 steaks for life by going to everyplate.com slash podcast and entering code 49ECOCHIC. Subscription must be active to qualify and redeem $1 steaks. Again, that's everyplate.com slash podcast and enter code 49ECOCHIC. It'll be in the show notes. Yeah, you were mentioning patience earlier, and I think that's probably a struggle for not just me, but a lot of people. I think that with the timing of purchasing furniture, there's this intimidation factor that you need something now. You need a side table. You need a whatever it may be. And you mentioned the book. If you are looking for something, like it's okay to get like some filler furniture and update it later on. And I feel like people have this kind of like finite energy around furniture and homewares that like once you've bought it, you're done with your home, like we were mentioning earlier, and it doesn't necessarily need to be that way, which, again, for me, that was kind of a novel realization reading the book, too. Yeah, I mean, I view my home as like something of a museum where I'm just changing it out. Like it's a new exhibit every month, right? If I get a new painting that I love and I want hung on the wall, then I will get rid of the old one. Um, That's kind of the beauty, I guess, of collecting vintage and also selling it is that you actually have a way to get rid of it. Uh, But even with things like Facebook Marketplace, I mean, you can easily buy 
a table at the thrift store. And if it ends up not being what you wanted, you can get rid of it somehow without just throwing it away. Yeah. Also, tangentially, I'd love to hear about your art. Like, how did you get into making art? How did you get into the art space from the furniture space? Because it seems like such a natural progression, but I feel like we don't see a lot of folks doing both. Yeah, it's so funny um, because I really so I started selling my vintage stuff on the website Cherish. And I was like an early adopter, I would say. That's probably been the key to my success as I was just one of the first people selling there. Um, And I developed like a pretty strong niche. Like you mentioned your sort of cocaine, sun-brenched Miami vibe. Um, I was really selling a lot of like postmodern and 90s. And um, I found myself when I would go out shopping for things to buy, I was always going, gosh, I just wish I could find like a text-based colorful painting because that would look really good with this thing that I day because I sold art really well. That was like one of my top sellers, vintage art. And then one day I was like, why don't I just make it? Because I used to do art when I was younger and I took art lessons. And um, I actually almost went to SCAD for graduate schools a long time ago. Um, And yeah. And so I just started making it. And like immediately the first piece I sold, the first piece I made sold on Instagram. And then it just took off. And now that's like it my own art is my top seller on Cherish, which is kind of strange because it's not vintage at all. I love that. That seems so like natural. Like it seems like it was just the right thing to do for you at the time and you were just following your intuition. Yeah. And I think it also goes back to sort of the idea of like developing your own style and your niche. If you are a seller, like the the art, I think the key to my success as an artist has been I make things that you know I made, right? So I'm constantly on Instagram. If somebody sees my one of my paintings, uh, you know, in the background of a TV show or, a, you know, influencer's apartment, they'll DM me and be like, oh, one of your paintings. And it's like, yep, that's it, because it's pretty recognizable stuff at this point. Oh, I love that. I love that. How does that feel for you to, like, see your art in the wild? Oh, it's really weird. It's really weird because I still don't think of myself as an artist. And I have some pretty big um, projects coming up in the next month or so that I'm really excited about. But, um, like, I had... Uh, the Jimmy Kimmel show bought a couple of my pieces for their green room probably about six months ago. And so I had to sign all these NDAs and stuff in case, you know, they're on TV, uh, which I hope they are. I would, if the Kardashians are listening to this, I would love if they would pose in front of them. Um, but yeah, so it's it's still weird to me, I guess, that people even want the things I create. I think we all sort of struggle with imposter syndrome at some point in our lives. Certainly I do. I feel like the creation bit is also really interesting, like using creation, using that same idea around building out a room like we've been talking about earlier. You have that personal style. You know that you want some great text-based art. You know kind of like the raw image of the room you're trying to build. I would love to talk about how you shop now as someone who is more experienced, as someone who has that eye now for design, because a lot of folks frankly don't. I think that there's this intimidation factor and you have this great chapter in the book about different places to shop. So you talk about thrift stores, you talk about antique sales, you talk about estate sales, which I definitely want to talk to you about and pick your brain on. But I feel like there's so many kind of means to get into secondhand shopping that that in itself is the way that people can feel more comfortable picking where you may feel like there's the least challenge, I suppose. Oh, I'd love to talk a little bit about how you shop now, your preferred places to shop, how you encourage people to shop, 
what that creation looks like in your head when you're really like devoted to building out a room in as many ways as possible? Well, the thrift store will always be my favorite place to shop. I think I'll just always have a soft spot for it. Um, But I think certainly in Florida, the estate sale scene is kind of insane. You can find some really incredible things. And I think if you are new to this whole world and you go to one really great estate sale, you could leave with a full room's worth of stuff Um, and also probably a closet full of clothes, depending on, you know, if you find someone who sort of shares your personal aesthetic. Um, I also love a flea market. I mean, if it's a good one, you know, flea market is a really sort of broad term. And I also love an auction because you can get such good deals at auctions because everyone is so scared of them. So maybe not in like an L.A. or New York or something. But here, if you go to an auction, I mean, I've got $1,200 lamps for a dollar because just because nobody was there and I only one who bid. That's amazing. Yeah. And that was one auction. Gosh, I got, I actually got two lamps for $3. So they ended up being $1.50 each. And then one of them is this like insane postmodern chrome lamp on a travertine base. I also got this beautiful leather sling, like butterfly chair with a matching ottoman, which is by the designer William Catabolos. It's worth like $1,500. I think I paid $40. Um, I got a bar cart, the same. So it was just one of those like, you know, somebody was just auctioning off the all of the stuff in their house oh my god I've never been to an auction I've bid on art online so like art auction online not nearly as um I don't know not nearly as like intimidating I suppose as like going into someone's home estate sales I have found to be both very enjoyable and like a little bit too personal of an experience because you're like walking through someone's home looking at their life, like looking at the context of your, their life. And like you said, you could leave with the whole room. There's something a little eerie to me about that. Like there's something about thrifting furniture out of someone's home that for whatever reason feels invasive. But that's literally the point of an estate sale. Like the point is for you to go through and buy their things. Yeah. And that's always been for me. That's like, gosh, I get so many comments on Instagram for people who are like, aren't you worried this stuff is haunted? And I'm always like, oh, I hope it is. I really hope it is because I I love the idea of history and thinking about the lives something has lived before me. And also with estate sales, I mean, generally, they're well kept. So you're finding furniture that's like probably been in the same home for a long time. Um, Certainly, if it's a really nice home and maybe it's even in a room where it was never sat on versus a thrift store, it may have had multiple owners and sort of had to get delivered there and it went through the donation center and it might be a little dinged up. Uh, so I think it sort of depends on what you're looking for, I think. Uh, and and even like with thrift stores themselves, there are some thrift stores that have a lot more furniture than others. Like I found that Habitat Restore, which is like a chain run by Habitat for Humanity, those tend to have excellent furniture and a lot of it. Um, sometimes those also have really great art because they are getting donations from like I've seen at my local uh, Habitat, they got a donation once from a hospital. So it was like the hospital's full collection of art, which is a ton of art. And some of it was original and and really great. So um, and then, you know, Goodwills might have like a smaller selection of furniture, for instance. I find that Salvation Armies tend to have more furniture than Goodwill, at least in this area. So um, I think it all sort of depends and you've got to go frequently. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. 
Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think the frequency is a really important part of this. You mentioned in the book, like, there are sometimes you just have to ask around, like, who is dropping off your donations regularly? Like, you were saying estate sales, not everything gets sold, so it very often has to go somewhere else, and you just have to ask the right questions to figure out where things are getting dropped off. And then kind of tailoring your shopping around that, even if you're not going in with a super specific idea, and like we were talking at the top, like, if you have some vague idea of what it is that you're looking for, the time to go is like when everything is getting dropped off. And I think that is also a huge hack that that you gave. And I'm so interested to see like how I can employ it locally for myself. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's one of the really fascinating things about thrifting. And I hear from people all the time that say, well, you know, you must have a great Goodwill because I went to mine yesterday and it didn't have anything good. But I mean, some thrift stores get like 40,000 items per week put out on their floor, which is insane. Like a single thrift store getting in 40,000 pieces of merchandise. There's another stat I saw in the Washington Post that um, the average thrift store will only sell one third of its merchandise. So, I mean, those two statistics combined just shows you there is kind of an endless supply of stuff at these stores. And the best way to find it is just going as frequently as you can, like picking, I mean, if you need something specific, pick one day a week and just go every single Monday or every single Tuesday. Even if you're going to the same thrift store, you might see entirely different things every time you go. Oh, yeah. And I've heard that about clothing, too. I've heard clothing is even less. It's something like 10% of clothing at a thrift store is actually getting purchased. Oh, I'm sure, because there's just so much of it. No, it's unbelievable. And I was also talking to you at the top about resale, and we can pivot to that a little bit if you want. But this idea that there is so much stuff at thrift stores that's just either getting ignored or picked over or ultimately making its way to a landfill because it's very hard to do anything else with those items after they've been sitting in a store for quite some time. I think that there's this interesting kind of like myth about the ethics of thrifting that you need to be in need to thrift. And that's certainly not the case, again, just given how much stuff there is out there. So I'd love to talk a little bit about like misconceptions that you've encountered. We talk about the haunted items, but like what are some things that folks are worried about, I suppose, when they come to you with with questions about thrifting? Well, I think supply and demand is a huge one because I get so many comments every week saying, you know, you're ruining this for everybody because you're encouraging people to thrift and now there's not going to be anything for the rest of us. And that is just not true. I mean, just statistically, it's not. There's an endless supply. Um, and I think there's nothing wrong with increasing the demand for shopping secondhand because it's so much better for the environment, especially when it comes to things like furniture. Um, going back to that, I mentioned the Washington Post had that great stat um, and they linked recently to uh, there's a chart on the Environmental Protection Agency's website and it sort of chart how fast furniture has expanded because we talk a lot about fast fashion, but fast furniture is a huge issue as well. So in 1960, there were 2 million tons of furniture in landfills, and now it's over 10 million tons because furniture has gotten really cheap, right? Like in the 1970s, we started using containers to ship furniture. And because of that, we wanted to stick as much furniture in it as we could. So we started using 
cheaper materials like particle board, which is what, you know, no shade to Ikea. I've bought things from Ikea. But if you've ever built something from Ikea, you know that it's made out of particle board versus like oak because oak is heavy and we don't want to put all this heavy stuff in a container. I mean, business wise, it makes sense why they would do that. But now we're buying furniture that has to be replaced in a year or two. And we're buying it really cheaply. And the fact is you can go to a thrift store and probably find a really nice piece that will last you a lifetime and be the same price as that particle board piece. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a, I think this notion that if more of us go thrifting, there's less for the rest of us is crazy. If you've ever made a donation run to Goodwill, you know that you yourself probably have more than you know what to do with. Every time I'm like, oh, I'm just going to make a quick run to Goodwill, I end up with my car full of stuff. And I'm like, how did I get all of this crazy stuff? Like what what brought these books and T-shirts or whatever? Um, That's why I think there's plenty to go around. I think we should be encouraging people to shop that way. And like you said, I mean, the, the thing about thrift stores and the whole sort of reason behind them is they're a charity right? That's the charitable aspect. It's, it's not just that you're buying a coat for someone in need. You're buying a coat and the money from that coat is going to like job programs or community hospice programs. I mean, most thrift stores have some sort of affiliation with a charitable organization. Obviously, you would have to do your own research because there are some that don't. There are certainly for-profit thrift stores as well. But even the for-profit thrift stores, I mean, I, I think there's probably an argument to be made that it's still better to be buying, you know, secondhand than sort of encouraging this endless cycle of of reproducing fast fashion and fast furniture. Oh, absolutely. I have so many thoughts, actually. So I have to tell you, like, fast furniture is one of my favorite pet topics that I don't think we talk about enough in the environmental space. And I think the challenge there is that there's also this group of individuals that, like, want to combat the idea that fast furniture is bad. And it's not necessarily that you like cannot be shopping Ikea or, you know, whatever it is, that fast furniture that you're purchasing. The challenge is that we know things are breaking down more quickly. And then the opposition is like, oh, well, I've had my Ikea stuff for 10 years. And you're like, that's the point. Like, I hope that you do keep it for as long as you possibly can. But like, you're probably not the rule to this, you know, to this formula, right? You're the exception. And I think the interesting part to that as well is like folks really want to believe that they are doing the right thing with whatever like homeware purchase it is. So if you're buying Ikea and that's the right thing for you, that's great. But if you're buying secondhand and you're like concerned about the ethics, buying secondhand is still the best way to go if those are all of your options. So I think there's this kind of like, yeah, there's this moral obligation in your furniture purchasing that I think a lot of people probably struggle with. Yeah. And I mean, even taking away all of that, it's better for your budget, like truly to buy a really nice mid-century piece that you buy for 40 bucks that is has been around since the 1950s or 60s. So you know it's going to last because it's already lasted. And it's still in style because if you've been in a West Elm, like that's all that stuff is, is reproductions of mid-century stuff. So it's funny because, and, and similarly with Ikea, like, and going to Ikea, I mean, there's some really cool vintage Ikea too that's really nicely made. And you can find that at the thrift store. But a lot of that, and if everything is cyclical. Trends are cyclical. So what we see now, like it's been done in the past and probably better. So if that's your style, you can find it at the thrift store. You just have to go more often than maybe to, you know, an Ikea. No, absolutely. And also 
fast furniture has only gotten faster over time. I think a lot of folks forget that. Like there is great vintage Ikea. There are great vintage pieces from all of these fast furniture stores as well as fast fashion, right? Like now we talk about vintage Forever 21 because it's been around for that long. And I think that we really fail to recognize that like fast today is not the same as fast 20 years ago. And there's nothing wrong with buying any of these fast pieces, furniture or fashion or whatever it may be, if it's secondhand still, like you're still getting a great deal. You're still buying secondhand. Like there are still great, great opportunities to like do well with your purchasing and be a conscious consumer. Yeah, it's a really good point because even, you know, a lot of what I specialize in in finding is like those more luxury items. And even those, I mean, like a Louis Vuitton bag made today is not the same because a lot of that, I mean, it's not the, as nice of materials in many cases. Some of it's made in factories rather than made by artisans and, you know, by hand. So, yeah, it's, it's a really great point. I mean, things in general are just, you know, not made as well as they used to be. I could go on about the Louis Vuitton of it all. Like luxury designer becoming fast is so interesting to me because it's still quite coveted. It's still something people are willing to pay for. And, and it's anyway, still like wildly expensive, more and more and more expensive as it gets less and less and less nice. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'd love to talk a little bit about your specialties for a moment because you talked about your specialty being something that's a little bit more luxe, higher end items, and you have been reselling for quite some time now. So I'd love to hear a little bit about like what you find folks are attracted to. Like what do you find resells the best? What are you the most excited to find? Like what in your specialty gets you really excited still? Um, you know, I mean, I, was, I love obviously finding like a luxury thing. My biggest find ever, I found a Goyard trunk um, that is probably a hundred years old and I got it for under a hundred bucks and, you know, Someone offered me like $32,000 for it recently. So that's such to tell you how much um, it's worth. Uh, but at the end of the day, like my favorite things to find are one of a kind things. I love art. Anything weird or whimsical. I write in my book about the joy of a good WTF moment because I love like a conversation piece or just something kind of kooky I have behind me. A death mask, which is exactly what it sounds like. Um, and that was an estate sale find. I think it was 10 or 20 bucks. Literally, it's a cast of someone's face made after they died. Definitely haunted, I'm sure, but I don't get any bad vibes. So uh, I guess it's a good haunting. Um, so stuff like that, to me, I love. Um, and that's the kind of thing. This is not for sale and I'll never sell it. But um, oddities like that tend to actually be very, very valuable. Um I love anything like funky postmodern, you know, um, and just anything like wacky and weird. I have like a, I found this really cool wicker frog many years ago um, that a late night talk show host purchased. It's in the book, the frog. Um, and it's not like designer or anything. It's just one of those weird pieces. But people, I think that resonates with people, you know, because that's not what you see like when you go shopping every day you kind of have to pull from either vintage or from like some really high-end artist or something to find those weird things oh yeah and you also have to have an immense amount of like self-trust because if i saw a wicker frog like i would not know what to do with it but if you're styling it correctly if you have the vision why not lean into the weird and the funky because it is just your personal style extended. Yeah. I also love sculpture, like really nice, you know, anything that's like, because sculpture is something that I feel we would all just think, well, I can't afford to collect sculptures, right? But I sound incredible 
sculptures by like renowned artists at thrift stores. And they've ended up there because, you know, probably the kids inherited their parents' house and they're like, what is this weird thing? I'm getting rid of it. Um, similarly, at estate sales, you know, people will, the estate sale companies don't always know what they have. So they'll mark things down if they don't know what it is. And that's, you can kind of look out and build a really nice art collection that way. That I think is the way to go. Like my thing with sculpture is I feel like I don't have a place to really put it or display it. And maybe it's that I live in a small space now, but I don't know. Like there's something a little intimidating to me about sculpture just because it it needs a place. It needs to be displayed. Because you think it needs to be on like a pedestal, but it could just be on the floor. (laughs) That's true. That's totally true. I could totally understand like if you are inheriting art, if you're inheriting a home and like you don't have the time to sift through that. Of course, you're just going to mark it down and you it takes someone that really has the patience to like sift through stuff. And you had a line in the book where you talked about very often you are taking off like the tourist shot glasses to find a vase that's in the back corner. And I feel like that is the treasure hunt aspect that's so intimidating sometimes about thrifting furniture. But it's also like the fun part. (laughs) And it's so addicting. And I do think there's something kind of innate in us as human beings. We love hunting for treasure. You know, I remember, I think it was JCPenney. Many years ago, they were taken over by like a VC firm or something. And the company was like, we're going to do away with sales. We're doing away with sales. And now everything at JCPenney is just going to be cheaper. But the consumers hated it because people love a sale because you feel like you got one over on the retailer. And I think that happens with thrifting. Like there's this moment where you find something and you're like, I got to check out because they're going to find me out. They're going to realize this is like this piece of treasure. And the truth is they don't care. They just want to get rid of everything they have. But I think that's like that treasure hunt and that moment where you like unearth this, you know, needle in a haystack. It feels like you won something somehow. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you made a comment, too, about like just taking the time to really look at items that you had found a Christian Dior cape and it didn't have a tag on it. But you're looking at it and it's like very obviously embossed inside or there was something about it that you were like clearly. And it had CDs all inside the lining. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that like if you're not taking the time to find, you would never think twice about. And also, if you are someone working at a thrift store, what are the chances that you're going through it with that kind of fine tooth comb? Like they also, like you said, like they don't they don't care. Like they want to sell their items and move on with their business. Yeah. Even, you know, I hear it from a lot of people about thrift stores marking up their prices. And I know some of them will have like the glass case at the front. But in my in my experience, they're usually putting new stuff in there. It's not really the stuff I want. Like they'll maybe have some unopened Pottery Barn sheets or something. And so but they're not like a Christian Dior cape because a cape is kind of weird. Like people don't really wear capes anymore. So even if they knew it was Christian Dior, I don't know that they'd like mark that up, at least here, maybe in L.A. or New York or something. But um, yeah, in my experience, the markups are happening on like newer you know, new with tags items. Yeah, I also think the treasure hunt aspect of this, like that idea of sales is really problematic. This time of year, we're talking before the holidays where folks feel like they're getting a deal and things are on sale. So they need to keep buying or people buy because something's on sale. And even when you're thrifting, I think a lot of people forget like it's totally possible for you to also be over consuming and just like buying for the sake of buying which is such a problematic trap because you went into it thinking you were doing good and like fine and having this thrill of like finding a piece. So I'd love to talk about like the other half of it. How do you stop yourself? Like when do you put the brakes on yourself as someone who now thrifts professionally? So 
The interesting thing for me, it's changed so much too since I came out with my book because now when I go out, really my goal is educating people. I love like filming a TikTok or an Instagram reels and showing people what I found. Oftentimes I don't even buy it. And that scratches the itch for me because it's like, look, here's some, so if somebody sees this and, and this often happens, I'll post something and then someone will see it and they'll go buy it. Like, great, good for them. But if I don't need it, even buying to resell, I have sort of a rule with myself that if I wouldn't keep it in my own home for a year or two years, I can't buy it. Um, and I think some of it comes with experience, too. Like there are certain things that are just really difficult to resell. Lamps, floor lamps are a really good example. People don't want to pay for shipping. I get it. I mean, they're huge, so they usually have to be hand delivered. They're not easy to just put in a box. Um, so those are things that even if I see a really cool one, I generally won't buy it. Um, but yeah, I think for me, it's like, that's the cool thing about social media. Or if you can find like a forum, it can sort of scratch the itch for you to just like share your finds without having to actually purchase them. That's a great tip. I think for me, it's not so much about over-purchasing. I think that now, like, I'm on the flip side where I was someone who was very excited about sales and the more I thought about my purchases and became more of a conscious consumer, I now am very nervous about buying things. Like, I think about something for so long before I make that purchase. And you can't really do that when you're thrifting, especially furniture, especially if you're going to an estate sale or a flea market or something. Like, there is no waiting around and you have to have that self-trust. Yeah. I mean, if it's something really good, you have to buy it. But sometimes I think I write about this in my book as well. I mean, sometimes it it pays to hold off. Um, like I I found a really cool painting at an estate sale and I didn't buy it because it was just way out of my price range. I mean, it was thousands of dollars and I saw it at a thrift store many months later. The estate sale had not sold it. And so they had donated it to the thrift store and it was 12 bucks. So um, sometimes it's good to have patience because if the universe wants you to have it, it will bestow it to you somehow. That, that's what I needed to hear, honestly. What is on your thrift wish list now? Like, what is a piece that you would love to find one day that is just going to have to come across somehow? Like, maybe it's something rare. Maybe it's something hard to find. Oh, like a Birkin bag or vintage Birkin? No, that's what I do. You yeah, a good one? one. Um, gosh. Um, well, I mean, I have this really cool piece of art um, that it's like kind of loosely based off of the artist Christopher Wool, and it's called Ass Art. And it's just a bunch of words that start with A-S-S. So I'm looking at it now. It says like assembler, um, assailant, just all over. And it's like text art, which is my favorite. And I love it. So I'm always I got it at the guy's estate. Um, he had passed away and he was an artist. And so I got it there, but I'm always kind of hoping to come across another of his pieces, like at a thrift store or something, um, because that's happened to me in the past where I've, I've sort of started a collection. I mentioned Hugh's sculpture earlier. There's this, a local sculptor who I found one of her pieces at a thrift store. And then a year later, I found another of her pieces at a thrift store. So it's kind of fun to like collect one specific person that way, almost like, you know, shopping at an art gallery or something, but um, in a more sustainable way. I love that. Are there things that still stump you? Are there things that still stop you when you're thrifting and you're like, even if I don't need this, I think I should just take it home because I don't find a lot of trunks, for example, or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, if it if it was something like a 
really rare piece, I am willing to like rent a U-Haul and bring it home. Uh, even if I didn't have the space, there was a Vladimir Kagan couch that I bought several years ago and I found it on Craigslist and I rented a U-Haul and I drove two hours for it. And I didn't need it at the time. I ended up needing it later because I moved into a home and it had room for an extra couch. So it ended up paying off. And then I moved and I had to sell it, um, which was fine. I still sort of think about it, though, because I loved it. <laughs> um, and I, I mean, I think I paid $300 and I saw one on Cherish the other day for like 12000 which is probably too high. But um, it was just like fun. So things like that, I, I will, you know, if it's something that's like, whoa, major. I mean, it was a Goyard trunk. Even if I was in Spain or something, I would figure out a way to get it home. Oh, I love that. I love that. When I was moving into my current place a few years ago, I was looking for coffee tables and I kind of just like gave up on my search, I think, because I was feeling that pressure of time. And there are these coffee tables that I feel like they haunt me. These like two, it's a two piece yin yang coffee table, Bowman. I was always finding just one of the coffee table. Like it's meant, it's meant to be in a set and I was always finding one. And I have come to realize over the years that I've been like missing this coffee table and disappointed in myself for like giving up the search. Like it will come across eventually, but I need to find two or like I just need to buy two separate pieces from individual people or like, you know, once you come to terms with the idea that like if you're looking for something ultra specific, you've got to just be willing to kind of wait your whole life for it. I That to me is the worst part, I think. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I mentioned this. I did it event in Atlanta recently and they had me go thrifting before and like thrift some things locally in Atlanta and bring them to the event. And I found this really great stool um, for like five bucks at a Goodwill and, um, you know, by this major mid-century designer. There, were all, there was only one, but I mean, my advice would be buy it and then you can always buy the rest that you need online on like a cherish or something or you might you know if you had bought one half of your yin and yang you might have found the yang somewhere else yeah the last kind of bucket of questions i'm so excited to talk to you about is this philosophy of thinking like a designer so we've talked a lot about how you found individual pieces how folks can find their individual style but i feel like there's also this kind of accessorizing element to a room that a lot of people are intimidated by so maybe it's a mantle, like you mentioned in the book, like a mantle that doesn't get dressed up anytime that's not Christmas or a bookshelf that is just purely overflowing with books and there's not decor on it or nightstands or whatever it may be. I want to talk a little bit about this think like a designer philosophy or like how folks can begin to think like a designer if they are already living in a space that they're comfortable in, but they're not truly inspired by. So I think my biggest piece of advice, and this is something that I sort of started playing around with this past year, is to do the wrong thing. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Alison Bornstein, but she's a fashion stylist and she's gone viral on TikTok. She has something called the wrong shoe theory. So the idea is that you pick the wrong shoe. So if you're wearing cargo pants, you would wear stilettos instead of combat boots. Or if you're wearing like a little dress, wear like a cool, chunky sneaker with it. I think you can do the same thing with interiors and especially with accessories. Um, I talk a lot about on Instagram, the wrong art theory, which I think is the easiest way to do it. And this is, I mean, all you have to do is look on like the expert for El Decor and you'll notice a lot of the art doesn't necessarily match the space. And that's what makes it look amazing, right? So if it's a 
really traditional space and everything sort of complements one another. And, um, you know, there's the matching side tables and matching lamps. Maybe the painting is like some weird vintage cartoon or um, maybe it's like a crazy abstract that you wouldn't think of in that space, but it works. Or maybe it's a really like sort of sexy mid-century modern space. And instead you hang this like very Buckingham Palace-esque portrait on the wall. And something about that like mismatch and, and juxtaposition, I think that's what makes things look very grown up. I also think so many of us are stuck in this idea of like, you have to have everything matching. And that was like big in the 90s and early 2000s. You would go to like an Ashley Furniture. Like I remember even my first apartment, like you buy the whole bedroom set, right? And it all matches the bed and the tables. And those days are over. Like you don't even have to have matching side tables. Maybe they are made out of the same material or they have some commonality, like a similar shape. Similarly with lamps, you know, on either side of your bed. Maybe they're both black and white, but maybe one is, you know, some weird cantilever like 80s thing and the other is like a paper Noguchi lamp or something. Um, so I think kind of maybe fighting against your first instinct is what a designer would do and can make a space actually feel really, really sophisticated. That is such good advice. That's something that I would never think of for myself because the whole point is that you are not falling into something you're comfortable with. Right. And eventually you'll get comfortable with it. And I think when you make those choices, eventually you'll get much more comfortable with your own aesthetic and, and personal style. Oh, my gosh. Well, Virginia, I feel like I've learned so much from you in a very short period of time. I have to say thank you so, so much for just letting me pick your brain. Thanks for picking it. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Virginia Shamley, all about harnessing your own big thrift energy. I will have all of Virginia's links in the show notes. And if you've stuck around this long, if you feel like I deserve it, go ahead and rate and review the show wherever you're listening today. Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio. I really appreciate it. It helps us out a lot. And like I mentioned at the top of the episode, in the show notes, you will also find links to articles we talked about. You can find my social links down below. Anything you've ever wanted to get further in touch with today's conversation, it's down there. So with that, thank you so much again for tuning in and I will talk to you next week. Bye.